millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. An Erio's original. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Aftermath. The Aftermath. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this episode of The Aftermath. Today, we will be speaking with guest expert, Dr. John Kirk. He's a history professor at University of Arkansas at Little Rock and author of Beyond Little Rock, The Origins and Legacies of the Central High Crisis. Let's hear what he has to say about the Little Rock Nine. Hi, Dr. Kirk. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So can we start off by having you tell us a little bit about your background and how it has led you uh, to research, um, to all of your research for the Little Rock Nine? Yeah, well, as listeners might be able to tell, uh, I grew up in the United Kingdom. I'm from England and uh, got interested in race relations in the United States while doing my undergraduate degree at the University of Nottingham. I took American studies there and in my senior year, I uh, did a thesis on William Faulkner and race, and that kind of got me interested in race relations in the South. And then I went to the University of Newcastle-upon-Tyne to do my PhD on the civil rights movement in Arkansas. Uh, at the time, you know, there were a lot of books that had written the national story of the civil rights movement, but uh, a number of books were starting to come out that looked at local and state-level politics and the long history of the civil rights movement stretching back into the 1940s and up to the present day. And Little Rock was one of the places that obviously was a hot spot in the civil rights movement with the school crisis in 1957. So I wrote a long history of the civil rights movement for my first book that kind of contextualized the Little Rock school crisis within decades of African-American activism within Little Rock and within the state. Why don't you, if you could, help set the stage for us. What is the What was 1950s Arkansas like? Uh, it was still pretty impoverished and pretty rural. Um, the state was uh, experiencing a kind of decline in its cotton economy and was about to tip the balance in the 1960s from a rural agricultural to a manufacturing economy. Uh, and lots of people were leaving because of this decline in rural cotton economy. Arkansas was experiencing massive depopulation. So the population was going down. Uh, the state was in kind of economic crisis uh, but Little Rock is kind of different from the rest of the state. You know, Little Rock is one of the few urban centers at that time, probably the only real urban center uh, right at the heart of the state, so right in the middle of the state. 
Which is important, I think, because, you know, Arkansas is something of an odd state. It straddles both the south and the southwest and the west and the midwest uh, on on each of its sides. So in the kind of southeastern part of the state, Arkansas shares much in common with the Mississippi Delta. The Arkansas Delta is the kind of flip side of that, the other side of the Mississippi. And that's where the massive amount of the African-American population has always been concentrated with its legacy of cotton and slavery. But the northwest part of the state is quite different. It's a part, a place of rolling hills and going up into mountains. And it has traditionally had a very small black population. Many of those counties had no black population at all. And Little Rock is kind of wedged right between those two very different sorts of parts of the state. So it's a kind of interesting crucible where the, the sort of southern delta starts to meet the west and midwest. So it's a fascinating sort of um, place lo- place location geographically. Yeah, I had never thought of that. So a- after the Supreme Court rules that segregation is unconstitutional, nothing happens for a few years. What's the holdup? Uh, well, there are a number of reasons. Uh, firstly, when the Supreme Court hands down its ruling in Brown versus Board of Education, it delays the implementation order for a year. So it says... Uh, schools have to desegregate, but it doesn't really give any guide to how they have to desegregate or when or put anything in, in writing in terms of what has to happen. All they do is say this has to happen. And in the meantime, they hope they can get feedback. They can get uh, the soundings of southern states and others in government to try and help them show a way in which they can achieve this. But uh, the support is not very forthcoming at all levels. You know, Eisenhower is the president at the time. Uh, demurs and he you know in private he says he doesn't think it's a good idea in public he's fairly lukewarm in support congress is pretty hostile you know 101 southern senators and congressmen uh, write a southern manifesto that says the ruling is unconstitutional um so the supreme court is in a tight place and in 1955, a year after, in May 1955, a year after the Brown v. Board of Education decision, it announces its Brown implementation order. And this implementation order is quite uh, ambiguous. It doesn't really give much of a timetable. Famously, it says schools should proceed with all deliberate speed in desegregation. So uh, the timetable is really slow. There's no real indication about what... Um, should happen in terms of how schools should desegregate, at what grades, uh, and all those kinds of things. So it's uh, it's quite a difficult uh, setup um, to operate within. And in Little Rock, uh, Virgil Blossom, who's the superintendent of schools, uh, he uh, delays doing anything on school desegregation until that implementation order comes down. But then, you know, perhaps surprisingly, in uh, lieu of what light of what things uh, happened afterwards, uh, Blossom uh, is one of the first, Little Rock is one of the first school districts to announce compliance with Brainby Board of Education after the implementation decision comes down. And Blossom sort of takes a lot of responsibility for drawing up what becomes named after him, the Blossom Plan for School Desegregation. Uh, but it's a curious um plan that he puts together because in planning for desegregation he builds more segregated schools in the city Uh, at the time the two main schools are central high school which as the name suggests is pretty centrally located uh, near downtown little rock and which is the white high school and there's dunbar high school which is in the african-american neighborhoods which are not that far away from central they're 
closely located to one another. But one is the school that black students go to, one is the school that white students go to. And in order to deseriate schools, Blossom builds two new schools. One is Horace Mann High School, which is clearly located in the black neighbourhoods of Little Rock, out towards the east. And the other is Hall High School, which is built in the white neighbourhoods to the extreme west of the city. So it's clear that new schools are being built in racially designated areas, uh, presumably in the hopes that the catchment area will keep them, in, uh, in practical terms, still segregated, even though they're supposed to desegregate. So you have this new school building project, and um, Blossom assures the local members of the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People that they had no colour designation and that, you know, they're just new schools to expand for capacity. But then in February 1956, as Horace Mann is about to open, uh, they assign an all-black teaching staff there, which clearly designates it as a black school. And it's at that point that the NAACP uh, launches its lawsuit. Wow. I... I, I hadn't understood the 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 complexity of 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 how these um zoning of the schools played into it. Um so how were these students chosen and um how was Daisy uh Bates involved in the process? I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about how the students were chosen and uh, you know a lot of that is filtered through segregationist propaganda at the time that said you know, a lot of the, the, the sort of segregation groups in Arkansas said these were students who were chosen by the NAACP and shipped in from the north and, you know, they were stooges and all that kind of stuff. But the fact is, you know, the Little Rock Nine self-selected. Uh, Blossom opened applications to apply for schools and around 200 African-American students applied to go to the formerly all-white Central High School. But then Blossom, you know, put a, a series of tests in place and, uh, to sort of weed out uh, students and deter them from going. For example, he'd tell them when they turn up for interview that, you know, you're not going to be able to go in school band or participate in any sports activities because they're not going to be desegregated, so you're going to lose all those opportunities. He insisted that any applicants have to have a, had to have a certain IQ. Uh, so all of these things that white students didn't have to face uh, were put up as barriers for black students. So in doing so, he kind of whittled down and wore down the kind of resolve of black students to apply until it came down, in the end, to a final 10. Uh, there were 10 at the end, and then nine eventually ended up going into uh, into Central High. But it was only really then, once the students had self-selected, that the NAACP became involved. And Daisy Bates, who was head of the state uh, a conference of branches for the NAACP in Arkansas, uh, sort of helped to mentor them and, you know, gave them guidance about what they should do and, you know, how to go about the process and all those kinds of things. So the students were really, you know, determined and took their own choices and their families took the choices to be in the firing line and kind of take this uh, step towards school desegregation. It was only after that that the NAACP through Daisy Bates became involved. Interesting. So what, what now that we've kind of set the scene, can you walk us through how it played out for the nine? Mm. Um, yeah, the, uh, you know, the nine uh, survived all of these rigorous tests that Blossom put in their way. And they were, you know, students who were clearly uh, intelligent and willing and determined enough to go through with this process. 
Uh, and many of them, you know, had very legitimate reasons for wanting to go to Central High School. That is, they lived closer to it. Central High School at the time was in a fairly mixed area of residence. Uh, you know, it's what they call in the South salt and pepper neighborhoods, that is, black and white areas of residence mixed together. And many of them lived a lot closer to Central High School than they did to Horace Mann. So it was easier to walk or, you know, catch a bus closer to school at Central than it was to go to Horace Mann. Others needed to wanted to take classes for their careers that were at Central High School that weren't available at black schools. So, you know, there were very practical reasons. I, I you know, don't think many of the Little Rock Nine sort of thought themselves as breaking the color line, you know, as civil rights pioneers. I think, you know, they had this idea that they could get a better education there, and that's what they wanted for themselves. And they became sort of civil rights uh, pioneers in the process. Maybe if they... Uh, understood, fully understood, known everything they were going to go through, they might have thought twice about it. But, you know, they wanted a better education, so they decided to go through that. So um, the plan uh, really starts to unravel the Blossom plan during the final days leading up to school desegregation. Blossom has delayed it to build these new schools and all that kind of thing, but he set September 1957 as the date in which schools are going to desegregate. And just before, the day before they're due to desegregate, uh, Orville Forbus, who's the governor of Arkansas at the time, uh, calls out the National Guard to surround Central High School. And nobody really knows what's going to happen. He releases a very ambiguous statement that says the soldiers are not there to be integrationists or segregationists, but just to uphold law and order and all those kinds of things. So it's very ambiguous as to what's going to happen. And so the Little Rock Nine prepared to go to school the next day. Daisy Bates kind of rallies them. And a lot of the times they uh, gather at her home and all travel together. Uh, but on that particular morning, Elizabeth Eckford, uh, one of the Little Rock Nine, uh, didn't have a telephone. Her family didn't have a telephone. And Daisy Bates was kind of, you know, trying to organize everything and phone around and get everybody in line. And she couldn't get to Elizabeth Eckford. So Elizabeth Eckford uh, turned up that morning all alone at the school to face uh, a large white mob that had gathered outside of the school as well as the National Guard. And when she tried to enter the school, uh, the National Guardsmen stood there and blocked her way and refused to let her enter. And at that point, it became apparent that the National Guard were in fact there to stop the black students going into the school. Uh, so Elizabeth Eckford was turned away and she walked towards the bus stop clear that it wasn't going to get in. And, you know, it's quite a hurry set of circumstances. You know, the white mob followed her, screaming and yelling at her. And she sat at the bus station and one white woman... Grace Lorch was there to kind of look after her, I suppose, and, you know, uh, kind of guarded her from the mob and got on the bus with her. And, uh, you know, then she got away from the scene, thankfully, unharmed. But it was quite a, a precarious situation that she was uh, placed in. So after they are able to return and they're being escorted um, by by the troops, um there were still uh they still endured incredible amounts of hatred and and harassment um I, I believe that you've had firsthand accounts you've heard firsthand accounts from the nine what was it like for them uh pretty traumatic of course you know they were suddenly thrust into this national spotlight and this wholly uh tempestuous situation you know with the mobs and national headlines and international school uh, international newspaper headlines around the world. So they were, uh, you know, found themselves really at the center of the hurricane, uh, the center of the storm. And, uh, you know, a lot of the um, 
forward momentum for desegregation then lay upon their shoulders. Uh, you know, the fact was that if the segregationists could stop the Little Rock Nine from attending Central High, then it would remain segregated. They were the only now the only students, the only people uh, separating desegregation from maintaining segregation at Central High. So effectively, you know, the whole pressure fell on their shoulders then to go into the school and to stay into the school. So there's a huge amount of pressure on them. And, uh, you know, right. that continued throughout the school year. Yeah. You know, we usually think of the Rock School crisis as, you know, the events of September 1957 and the calling out the National Guard and then Eisenhower calling out the federal troops and all those kinds of things. But, you know, that was on the shoulders of Little Rock Nine throughout the school year. And once the school desegregated and once, you know, it was under federal occupation and they had federal escorts, they still faced a whole barrage of assaults and intimidation in the school uh, because then the attention switched to getting them out of the school. Once they got in, you know, white students there, many of them who were um, the uh, sons and daughters of the leading segregationists in the city, knew that if they could get them to leave Ah. voluntarily, then the school would remain segregated. So they physically intimidated uh, black students throughout the year in order to try and get them to leave on their own will and keep the school segregated that way. Well, you know, I've read, we read a lot about the the students and uh, the nine, but I'm curious about the adults who were directly involved. Uh, What was the reaction of the teachers and the faculty? Yeah, I mean, all the reports suggest that it was pretty mixed. There were some who were actively hostile to Little Rock Nine being there. There were some who, you know, reached out in support. And most were fairly ambivalent. You know, uh, we've got to remember that Central High School is a school of around 2,000. Maybe about 1,500, 1,600 just that year uh, attended because the numbers fell off and people went elsewhere because of all the trouble that had occurred at the beginning of the year. But still, the Little Rock Nine students were massively outnumbered. So it's easy enough to be a student in the schools, particularly if you're not in the, you know, in the same year, uh, to just be uh, unaware of what's going on because the federal troops leave uh, fairly soon afterwards and uh, the National Guard, uh, a very limited number of National Guardsmen are there to protect the students in the school. So, you know, it's easy enough to just um, ignore the fact that those students are there unless they're in one of your classes. Uh, so, and unless, as, of course, as, as a teacher, if you're teaching them. So, you know, life went on much as normal in the rest of the school. Uh, it was just, the, you know, the Little Rock Nine who experienced a very different sort of school year to the rest of the school body. What were some of the reactionary groups that formed in Arkansas as a resistance to desegregation? And, and what, you know, what part did they play in all of this? Right. Uh, at the very forefront was the White Citizens Councils, which formed across the South after Brown versus Board of Education. They formed with the explicit uh, program of preventing school desegregation from occurring. And uh, the head of the White Citizens Councils in Arkansas was uh, a man called James D. Johnson, or as they called him, Justice Jim Johnson. He was later, later sat on the Arkansas Supreme Court. And he built his political career uh, as a fairly young man on the basis of opposing Brown v. Board of Education, which many politicians did in the South. And he proved important because he was, he was kind of a political opponent of Orville Forbes. And he was a Democrat too. Of course, Arkansas was solidly Democratic at the time. You know, the state was, you know, part of the solid Democratic South, one of the most solid Democratic states in the South. So Republicans didn't really feature at all. And uh, the vying for Democratic power was the most important thing. So Forbes was elected in 1954. 
just uh, after Brainby Board of Education. And throughout the uh, campaigns, uh, he remained fairly ambivalent. He said it should be handled at a local level. And, you know, he kind of trod a line between moderation and, you know, support for, for segregation, but not a kind of militant uh, opposition to it. But in 1956, when he ran again, there were just two terms, two year terms for governor then. Jim Johnson entered the race. Yeah. So Jim Johnson entered the race in 1956 and he took on Forbes for the right to be governor. And of course, Jim Johnson was a firebrand uh, pro segregationist and had pretty extreme militant, uh, you know, segregationist rhetoric. And many observers would say that pushed Forbes into taking a stronger anti-segregation, anti-desegregation stand himself. So in fighting these primaries, Johnson kind of helped to uh, stiffen Forbes's stand against uh, segregation. And therefore, he started to make much more pro-segregation noises. Uh, but interestingly, after the election, when Forbes had won, he started to back away from that again and started to go back to his more moderate stance and you know some of the things that he got through the Arkansas General Assembly to prevent uh, school desegregation, he didn't really fully implement. So Forbes sort of backed off again. So the resistance is really important in terms of changing the political atmosphere in Arkansas at the time and making the state, forcing the state to take a much more uh, pro-segregation stance. So are there other factors at play here that we haven't discussed? I think there's a whole, you know, if you're looking for the, you know, to assign blame on, the, on a who, um, you know, who was responsible for the rot school crisis, there's a whole series of candidates. You know, Forbes is the obvious one uh, <laughs> who... Uh, well, yeah, let's go there. You know, if, if, if you had to pick, you know one person or thing, it can also be a, a concept or an idea that you think is to blame for the Little Rock Nine. Who or what would that be? Well, of course, segregation is to blame at the, at the, roots, at the, at the roots of it all. <laughs> if there weren't segregated schools in the first place, they wouldn't have to desegregate. And what you're kind of trying to untangle is something that you've already instituted uh, over many decades. So, I mean, that is the, that's the key thing. I mean, that's to blame. But, you know, if you're looking at individuals... Oval Forbes is probably the key character who you would blame because he was there, uh, you know, right at the heart of this and making the key decisions at the time of the school crisis. But Forbes would look to Virgil Blossom and leaders in the community in Little Rock and say, you know, he just was cleaning up their mess and that the uh, school desegregation plan they could come up with, with was inadequate. And that was to blame. You know, it hadn't done its job. And, you know, at the last minute as things unraveled, they hadn't done the preparations and he had to pick up the slack for, for their mistakes. I think Blossom and the people in Little Rock would say, you know, it's the Supreme Court's fault that we should they shouldn't have made this ruling in the first place and they transferred all the blame down to us and we had to, you know, deal with all this and we weren't equipped to deal with it and we have people here in the state who didn't want desegregation so the Supreme Court shouldn't have forced us to do that in the first place. Supreme Court would probably point to Eisenhower and the politicians in Congress and say, you know, we said schools should desegregate and we gave everybody a year to figure out how to best do that. But all we got was opposition and the president refused to back us strongly and Congress refused to back us strongly. So we had to hand down this watered down decision uh, in order to remain unanimous and to be able to move school desegregation forward at all. So there is this kind of blame game where people would point to one another and say, you know, 
you're the problem, you're the problem, that's the, that's the reason, that's the reason. Because, you know, segregation underlines all this. That's what sets the chain of events in motion. Uh, if segregation hadn't been established in the first place, the United States wouldn't have had to undo it and the Supreme Court wouldn't have had to make the ruling that it made. But that sort of sets off the chain reaction. And then it's a question really of, you know, who wants to accept responsibility? Everybody's trying to avoid responsibility because desegregation, particularly in the South, is politically unpopular. And nobody wants to take responsibility and step into the role of being politically unpopular. So they all try and sort of evade the issue as far as they can. And that's why you kind of get this 11th hour crisis, because at some point something happens that, you know, at the point that black students tried to get into the school, then something has to happen. Then you're at a point of decision. And up to that point, it's been more indecision than decision. So sounds like John Kirk is pointing the finger at evading responsibility. Right. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a, that's, that's, that's a good way to put it. Uh, you know, um, there was the, there's a quote that says, you know, all that, has, all that has to happen for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. And uh, I think that's, uh, you know, what you see at Central High School. People who, you know, refuse to take leadership responsibility, um, leave everything to everybody else. And then, you know, that's how crises happen. Uh, vacuums of leadership, lack of responsibility. And then people uh, like Forbes, you know, can step into those vacuums of responsibility and take charge at quite short notice and play very sort of fundamental roles in the way that things unfold. So if you don't have the structures in place initially, then, you know, you uh, hold hostages to fortune. And that's what happened at Central High. Well, uh, Dr. Kirk, thank you so much for uh, joining us today and helping us understand, um, you know, one of these uh, big, you know, civil rights uh, moments uh, in our country. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. With us today, we have producer Amanda Lund. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, Alarmy. So I'm so happy we had John on the show. Me too. He brought up, um, you know, of course, I'm taking copious notes, as always, when we have the experts. (laughs) He brought up some really interesting points. um, But overall, I feel like we were in the same area. So that felt good. That felt good. Yeah. Um, he, he did say the most obvious one was the governor, and that is who we uh, ended up sending to jail. Um, but I, I loved his blame game. And I do think that this is a, 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 a something we might incorporate in the future when there are so many players involved. 
I, li- I liked it too because he had the perspective of who would the people involved blame. Yeah. So this is what he said. Uh-huh. I wrote it down. He said, okay, well, first, glaring error. We didn't put segregation up on the board. <laughs> Whoa. It, that, that's, like, uh, that's like our Manson episode when we didn't put the killers. I apolo- We apologize for that. <laughs> and in defense of us we were just i think we assumed that's a given so yes okay and we did acknowledge that segregation was involved we definitely talked about segregation (laughs) okay so he said um that let's see that um uh this falbus would maybe have blamed the supreme court because they shouldn't have made the ruling in the first place before the state was ready the supreme court would have blamed eisenhower and congress for not coming up with systems to make desegregation happen which i thought was Mm -hmm. really interesting and then at the end of the day he said um that people were evading the issue because they didn't want to become politically unpopular which goes into evil politics that's right it really is a, it's full circle. It's a vicious, um, ugly cycle that causes, you know, like he said, 11th hour decisions to be made. And perhaps, you know, there, well, clearly in this case, it was not the, the right call, I think, for uh, Fabus to, you know, send the National Guard and, and to do it in the way that he did. Obviously, it created uh, a, a, a national, you know, media frenzy and, a, a, you know, bad media that then, you know, it, it just got so big. I don't think that was his intention. Yeah, because you're like, if, if Eisenhower or someone had been like, segregation is happening, whether you like it or not, like it's coming from the top, this is how you're going to do it. Then Falbus could have at least had an out with his constituents and been like, daddy's making me do it, you know, but instead (laughs) it gave him the opportunity. And this is what um, this is what Dr. Kirk said, too, that because there was a vacuum of leadership, Falbus Mm -hmm. stepped into that position. And that's when everything just totally went to shit. Not like it would ever have been easy, but it could have been a lot, a lot better. Smoother, definitely. Yeah. Now, but. Dare I say this, that in a way it is good that it happened because it did put the national spotlight on the issue of segregation. So it's it's a double edged sword in that sense where, you know, you know, obviously traumatic and the fact that they had to go through that, like no child should have to go through what the, the Little Rock Nine went through. Um. And also, and it really forced people to, you know, have start having these conversations. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's interesting. I mean, it should never have happened. But what would, um, in some, a place like Arkansas, like, what would, even if there had been a federal plan... Do you like maybe it would have still just ended up the same anyway, because the people right. they weren't they didn't want desegregation. They just didn't. They straight out didn't want it. Like what? I just can't imagine what it would be like to uh, be a black resident of that state. God. Just to live with that, you know, day in and day out. 
it's, I mean, it must have been incredibly traumatic. How, how do you, how do you live like that? I mean, and we um, see it in the South. Like, it's not like those scars are fully healed. <laughs> There's still a absolutely. lot of, a lot of and, tension. And with good reason. Yeah. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. So, yeah. It, it, these are, it's just really important that we keep learning. I, I personally hadn't really known much about the Little Rock Nine until I started doing my research for this. Um, so, again, we have to keep learning and keep um, educating ourselves on in the you know the events that have happened in our country, so we can hopefully make better choices. I hope so. And it's interesting too to look at it now from an adult's perspective because I know I we learned it in school, but you know when you're a kid, you're like a psychopath and you don't have any empathy. <laughs> it's like, and also it, it just just goes over your head. And now as someone who's an adult, and you really realize like how young these kids were and what pressure like and, and and he even said like the pressure of desegregation was on their shoulders you know they had to endure this because if they dropped out then the other side would win and so i thought you know that really was poignant but are do you think that you um want to change the verdict or are you sticking with it i think that we should stick with what we had um Ultimately, we sent the governor to the alarmist jail and we sent racism, which is segregation, right? <laughs> to, we gave racism the big slap. Um, I think we should have put segregation up on the board, but I do think we probably would have come up with the same outcome. And I think Rebecca, Amanda, Tony and Clay, Clayton that day pointed the finger at governor Faubus. <laughs> we pl- we played uh we played uh dr kirk's game and we ended up pointing the finger at him so we should stick with yeah that. we spun the wheel <laughs> for of this blame. one yeah i agree <laughs> i agree <laughs> all right well um uh, thanks again to dr kirk for uh all of his insight and uh tune in next week we are going to be covering the Britney Spears conservatorship. Erios. Powered by ACAST. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.